Have you ever heard a kid uh, express his feelings when something doesn't work out the way he wants it and say, it's not fair? Have you ever said that? Have you ever said, that's not fair? When a catastrophe happens, we say it all the time. We somehow feel that life ought to be fair. That life ought to be neat and packaged and predictable and logical. We think that if we do good, that good should happen. We ought to be rewarded for it. If we do bad, that there ought to be consequences. And of course, that always happens that way, right? No, it doesn't. There's not one person in this auditorium this morning who hasn't had the tables turned. You've done right and you've had bad things happen because of it. And let's reverse that. We've also done wrong stuff before and not suffered the consequences, though we usually don't complain about that part. It's the first part that bothers us. For instance, how many here have ever broken the speed limit? Raise your hand. Oh, you better all raise your hands. Now, when you've broken the speed limit and not gotten a ticket for it, did you lie in bed awake at night grieving that they didn't catch you? Did you ever think, it's not fair. I deserve a ticket. By golly, I'm going to turn myself in in the morning. No, you haven't. But give you a ticket when you don't deserve it and you will yelp and scream. You'll say, it's not fair. There are times when Christians do everything right in the will of God and they suffer for it. We read that last week. What do you do in times like that? How do you handle it? What's your attitude? I have a letter from a friend of mine that I met when I was in Manila, a missionary to the Philippines. He said, Dear Skip, I penned this letter in the midst of turmoil. The Philippines right now is facing one of the most difficult times I've ever seen. In the month of November, the bad economy took a turn for the worst, and the inflation rate is at an all-time high. This has caused great difficulty for all of us. There have also been major problems with the electrical power supply, and we've been experiencing two hours of blackouts twice a day. This is expected to continue. Manila is also engulfed in a transportation crisis. And then, this morning, we were awakened by the gunfire of another coup attempt. Upon getting up, I watched from my daughter Anna's bedroom window two World War II-era planes drop bombs on Channel 4 TV. Even now, as I write this letter... I can hear gunfire. Personally, we have also had major trials and attacks from the enemy of our soul. Diana and Anna, these are his kids, both contacted an amoebic parasite and needed 10 days of treatment. The landlord has raised our rent. Caleb, our dog, was diagnosed with heartworms, and a burglar got into our yard to try to steal the car. Thank the Lord he did not succeed, but he caused some damage before he left. Yet, even when faced with an uncertain future, I am realizing the truth of Philippians 4.7. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He goes on, In fact, I almost feel guilty for feeling so peaceful when many of the people around me are panic-stricken. To sum it all up, no matter what happens, there is no greater peace or joy than to be in God's will, even in the face of uncertainty, there is excitement and expectation at what God is going to do. 
We turn to 1 Peter this morning because it is a logical starting point. The theme of the entire book is Christian suffering. That's the mega theme of 1 Peter, Christian suffering. So if you're the kind of a person who says, I don't claim suffering, Christians should never suffer, you might as well just rip this book right out. That's the theme of it. He's writing to a group of struggling believers, and he's saying, hang in there, Christians, while you suffer. What Peter does in verses 3 through 9 is something classic. He reaches back to the past when we were born again. And then he reaches ahead to the future, and he looks toward heaven. He brings both of those elements together, and he says, Now, let those two elements be a frame of reference for you. Keep those in mind, and it will give you strength as you're going through the present. So he goes from past, future, and present, rather than past, present, and future. The idea is this. If you know where you've come from and where you're going, that will help you navigate now, in the meantime, the difficult trials of life, the present suffering. You remember in the Gospel of John, when Jesus got up from the Last Supper, put a towel around his waist, and started washing, what? The disciples' feet. This is at the time when he's going to the cross and it's at the pinnacle of personal suffering. The sin of the world is weighing on him. And you might wonder, how can anyone knowing what is ahead not be distracted with his own suffering? How could he have time to minister to other disciples and wash their feet? And that's because we miss the introduction to that chapter. We usually pass right by it. Let me read it to you. Jesus, knowing that he had come from God and was going to God, rose up from the supper, put a towel around his waist, and began to wash their feet. He knew that he had come from God. He knew that he was going to God. Knowing where he was from and where he was going back to, he endured the present. That's sort of the thought that Peter brings out here. Here's your past. Let it be an anchor, in a sense. Here's your future, know where you're going, and use both of those things as a frame of reference to deal with what you're going through at this point. So in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's past. That's what he's doing, reaching back and saying, You have been born again. Verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That's future. That's what's in store for you, a heavenly inheritance. And now here's the present. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Past, future, so that we can live now in the present. The Christian life is a whole lot more than just an episode of feeling remorseful and saying, Jesus, come into my heart. The Christian life is also more than just 
being on hold till we get to heaven. We need to learn how to be equipped to live effectively and efficiently right now, in the meantime. And part of that includes pain. Part of the curriculum that God has designed in preparation for the future, in getting us through life, includes a class on pain. Pain 101. Something we don't like. No, no, no. That's an elective, right? I'll take English over that. No, it's not an elective. Part of the curriculum of the Christian includes affliction. In fact, Job said, Man is born to trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward. Suffering is not a new theme to God's people. There are several books that include that as a major theme. Of course, I just mentioned Job. It was said of Job this, No one said a word to Job because they saw how great his suffering was. It's a theme of Jeremiah. The prophet said, Why is my pain unending and my wound grievous and incurable? It's a theme of 2 Corinthians. Paul spoke about hardships that he suffered. Hardships in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure. Listen to this. Far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired even of life. Of course, it's a theme to one of your favorite books. The book of Psalms. More Christians have more things underlined in Psalms probably than anywhere else. It's because they reflect real experiences. David says, I cry out to God, but he's silent. God, why are you so far from helping me? Why am I going through this? And you say, ooh, I'm going to underline that. I can relate to that. I've experienced that desperation. The prophet Habakkuk writes about being in despair and crying out to God. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy, and suffering is one of the themes of that book. When Peter wrote this book, the background was suffering. The early church lost their jobs because they were Christians, were kicked out of the synagogues and the temple, excommunicated, imprisoned, and tortured. And he's telling them to hang in there in the midst of these things. Plus, they had just the normal daily trials that we all go through. They probably had problems with their kids, problems with the landlords like everybody else. Somebody said, life is a process of getting used to the things you never planned. It's not neat and packaged. It's not programmed. Things happen. But God does have a plan in the midst of all that. i got to say something very, very candidly we will probably never know why things happen this side of heaven. Though you might try hard and beg and how can this happen, and you you probably won't know all the whys this side of heaven. Yet the Bible does speak to the issue of suffering and pain. It does give us some answers. It teaches us how to view it. It tells us how to prepare for it. It's inevitable. Prepare for it. More than that, it teaches us how to minister to those who are hurting. And I pray that this would not be an academic theological exercise in observing grief in the next few weeks, but that our hearts would be touched with the compassion of the Lord and we would learn how to be ambassadors of His grace and His compassion and His mercy. Now let's look back. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
from the dead. There's a lot in that, but there's one key word, mercy. Mercy is the core word, and the rest of these thoughts hang off that one word, mercy. God's mercy is what saved us, sustains us, and will take us into eternity. What does mercy mean? It means exactly this. Kindness or goodwill toward the miserable and afflicted, joined with the desire to help them. Once again, kindness or goodwill toward the miserable and the afflicted, joined with the desire to help them. It's our misery that has called forth God's mercy. It's our condition that caused God to be merciful. If you're a parent, you know what this is all about. Do you remember the last time your child suffered maybe a flu or some affliction, and though you medicated your child, there was that crying out as your son or daughter clung to your neck, wouldn't let go, cried out in pain and agony? What emotion does that evoke in you? Mercy. You said, I would gladly trade places with that child and take that suffering if I could. You're merciful. Someone said that mercy is not getting what you deserve. It's a good point. It's not getting what we deserve. I never ask God for justice for myself. I ask God for His mercy. Because I have failed, I have fallen short. Let's say that uh, after third service, you were just so hungry that you got on the freeway and did 95. Home from church. That would be kind of ironic, wouldn't it? And the police stops you. You roll down your window and he says, you're doing 95 and a 55. Just don't do it again. Have a good day. What would you say? Whoo! Though you deserve a ticket, you didn't get what you deserve. That's mercy. Judgment was withheld. There was a mother who approached Napoleon and begged for the life of her son. Napoleon said, no, this is his second offense. Justice demands death. She said, I'm not asking you for justice. I'm begging you for mercy. He said, but he doesn't deserve mercy. And she said, If he deserved it, it wouldn't be mercy. I'm not asking you for what he deserves. I'm begging you to be merciful and not give him what he deserves. And that struck a chord with Napoleon and her son was saved. We need God's mercy. If you're a Christian or a non-Christian, you need God's mercy. And let's be honest, we use a lot of it up. There are 500, no, excuse me, 358 separate verses of Scripture that speak about God's mercy. It sustains us. Jeremiah said, through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. Uh, Remember that next time you shake a fist at God or you're tempted to do so and say, it's not fair, I want what I deserve. Remember, through the Lord's mercies you are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Verse 3 tells us that this mercy is experienced, first of all, When we are born again, we are begotten again, it says. We call out to God. God responds. We're saved. The Bible calls that being born again. Just a note on that. Born again is not a name brand of Christianity. As some people think it is. Well, you've got your Baptists, your Methodists, your Catholics, and your born-againers. As if that's some separate little sect of Christianity. It is Christianity. 
You can't get to heaven unless you're born again. Now, you might be a Methodist, but you have to be born again. What does that mean? The word in Greek is anothen. It means, first of all, radically and completely. Second of all, it means a second time. And third of all, from above. So to be born again means a radical, complete change from above. It's where you encounter God and you don't remain the same. A change occurs, and it's so radical a change that the best way to describe it is that person's been born again. He has a new start. All things have become new. There's not one person in the New Testament who encountered Jesus and received Jesus who didn't change. They always have a testimony of change. The woman who had five husbands, a history of poor relationships from Samaria, When she encountered Jesus, she immediately, after receiving him, became an evangelist back in the city where she was scorned. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, remember the short guy who climbed the tree to see Jesus? Jesus went up to the tree and said, Zacchaeus, get down from that tree. I'm going to have lunch at your house today. And after inviting himself to lunch and spending time with Zacchaeus, after encountering Jesus, he was so changed, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, the ripoff, said, Lord, if I have stolen anything from anyone, I will give it back to them four times. I'll pay them back four times as much as I took from them. That's change. What about that young rabbi from Tarsus named Saul, later called Paul? He said, I'm going to fix those Christians. I'm going to go to Damascus and arrest them and kill them. Of course, we know he was knocked off his beast. He had an encounter with the Lord. And what did he do? He went to Damascus and you couldn't shut him up. He preached the gospel as fervently as he once persecuted it. Do you have a testimony? I'm not talking about a prepackaged speech. But do you have, can you say, there was this time in my life where I have been born again. I encountered God. My life has been radically altered and changed. I'm not the same person. It happened on this day or during that week or that episode in my life. And I'm different now. If you have that testimony, you have what this verse says, a living hope. Begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Think about that. Unbelievers have no hope beyond the grave. This life and this life only is where it happens. We have an endless hope. They have an Our hopeless end. Our hope is alive. It continues. It's not just temporary. It takes us all the way through. And so now look at verse 4. After a hope that lives, he speaks about a heavenly inheritance. To an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith, for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You've got a heavenly inheritance. As God's child, He's included you in His last will and testament. As a reference point, He says, look back, this is where it began, you've been begotten again, but put your hand also by faith on that future inheritance. And look what He calls it, incorruptible, which literally means nothing can ruin it. It's impervious to decay. And undefiled, which means it cannot be stained or cheapened. It's real. One day, 
you will face God as a Christian. Whatever you've suffered now, whatever physical affliction you've encountered in this body, you'll have a brand new body. You have a heavenly inheritance. There'll be no crutches, no wheelchairs in heaven. There'll be no hospitals. If you're a doctor this morning, you'll be out of luck. You'll be out of a job in heaven, put it that way. Of course, we'll all be sort of out of a job there. We'll be worshiping the Lord permanently. What a comfort this was to those Christians who were suffering in the early church from persecution, losing their jobs, being kicked out of their homes, and wandering about in Judea. Then look at verse 5. Kept by the power of God. Better translation, guarded. It means to stand garrison. It's a military term. Moreover, the tense of that word kept is absolutely important. It is a present passive participle. simply means this. The subject, which is us, the subject is being acted upon. The subject isn't doing the acting. And so I translate it this way. God is the one who is standing guard and keeping you constantly. Not only do you have a reservation in heaven, there is a preservation for heaven. God is keeping you through faith in Jesus Christ. As Jude puts it, Now unto Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. Now again, what a comfort this would be to the persecuted church. They said, you know what? This life isn't all there is. There's something better after this. I'm passing through. I am a pilgrim. I'm here on a temporary basis. As James Gray said, who can mind the journey when the road leads home? Think about it this way. If I'm suffering now, and that suffering will be cashed in for future glory, so be it. I would rather have suffering now and eternal bliss than all my glory now and eternal suffering. So he says, okay, Christian, you who suffer in the early church, remember that by God's mercy He saved you and by God's mercy you have a heavenly inheritance. And then finally, look at the next couple verses. It's a present day look, a help in suffering. In this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what's happening now. We've been saved past tense. One day we'll be in heaven, that's future tense. But there's a lot more to the Christian life than that. There is responsible living now that includes the curriculum of pain and suffering. And in the midst of that, he says, we rejoice. Um, Just a word back in verse 5 once again. It says we're kept by the power of God through what? Through faith. God will keep us, but we have to want to be kept. There is the cooperation of I believe, I trust, I live by faith. That's so important because there will be times where you will not understand what is happening or why whatever is happening is happening. And what do you do at that time? You've got to lean back on something. You've got to, by faith, believe the promises of God. Romans 8.28, probably something most of you Christians have memorized. You could say it in your sleep. And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. 
There have been times in my life where I lost all perspective and that's the only thing that came to my mind. That's the only thing I had to grab a hold of. The night my father called me and said, Skip, your brother has just been killed in a motorcycle accident. I lost all perspective. I was crushed. He was the closest to me and all of my family members. God, why? And I looked at Romans 8.28 over and over again. All things. And I confessed. I said, Lord, it'd be a lot easier for me to believe that if it said most things. Or some things. And this is tough. It says all things. After World War II, when the Allied forces swept through Europe and they went into every little house, farming community and building to look for snipers left over, they went into one farmhouse, went into a basement where a victim of the Holocaust once resided. And on the wall was etched a star of David. And underneath that star, these words were etched in stone. I believe in the sun, even when it does not shine. I believe in love, even when it is not shown. I believe in God, even when he does not speak. That's faith. The sun isn't shining right now. This is a dark hole that I'm in called suffering. But I know the sun is still existing, and I know that one day I'll get out of this dark tunnel, and it'll shine on me once again. Look at verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Various trials. If you have an old King Jimmy version, it says manifold trials. Manifold. Literally translated, many colored trials. Have you found that trials don't come in one shade? They come in different colors, different sizes and shapes, tailor-made just for you. Pain has many faces, does it not? It's not all the same. It varies. First of all, we know that there's physical suffering. That's usually what we think about when we talk about suffering and affliction. Some of you this morning know the pain of cancer. Some of you know the pain of being in an accident and being debilitated or birth defect or a stroke or a heart attack. You're not alone. Job, Paul, and others in the Scripture also suffered physically. Some of you also know the compounded pain from well-meaning but ignorant Christians who have told you you don't have to suffer as a Christian. Even though the Bible says Christians suffer, there are people who will say, if you have enough faith and you claim it, you don't have to suffer. And of course that hasn't helped you much. You thought much like Job did when his three friends told him the same thing and Job replied, miserable comforters are ye all. Doesn't help a person suffering to say, you don't have to suffer, just believe by faith and you'll never suffer again. I had a young man, a teenager, call me. This is some years ago. He called me on the phone. He said, I heard your message on the radio. I'm so grateful for it. I am suffering a rare disease. They don't know what it is, what caused it. When I go home to my parents, all they can say to me is, you are a failure before God. If you only had enough faith, you wouldn't have to have this disease. You could be cured. You could walk around in perfect health. You failed God. There's sin in your life. You're leading a Satan-defeated life. Huh. Thank you, Mom. 
C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. In fact, C.S. Lewis said, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And for some of you, you think, all right, I can hear him loud and clear. He's got my attention on this one. You've got to know something else about physical suffering. Here's one of the reasons we suffer physically, because we're humans. The body is growing old. The body is on its way out. We are wearing out. There is that natural process called death. It's as natural as life. And the statistics on death are astonishing. Every one out of one dies so far. That's where you're headed unless the Lord comes back before then. If he doesn't, you will be history. And part of that may include suffering and pain on the way. It's part of being human. Oh, but we're not under the curse. We'll discuss that actually in a later time in another study. Then besides physical suffering, there's mental suffering. Mental suffering. And some Christians know what that is like. And again, you're not alone. E. Stanley Jones, missionary to India, spoke about a friend of his who was a minister who prepared a 10-part series entitled How Not to Have a Nervous Breakdown. He had one before he finished the series. <laughs> he was pushing so hard to meet his deadlines that he had a nervous breakdown. Did you know that people even in the Bible suffered mentally in great anguish? Elijah the prophet, a man of great faith, no one would doubt his faith. No one would doubt the miraculous things that happened to him. Because of overwork, overexhaustion that led to depression, he cried out to God and said, It's enough. Take my life. I want to die. He was in anguish. Probably everyone in this room has suffered some form of disappointment or rejection or insecurity. And I would say this, that dedicated, hardworking Christians are often very susceptible to overwork that can lead to depression. Because we are driven. We want to serve God and just go, 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 go. But remember this. Jesus seemed to prefer the ministry of Mary who sat and worshipped at his feet above the ministry of Martha who was the worker. We need to take time to sit at his feet and get refreshed by him. Then there is spiritual suffering. The Bible talks about that. Some people agonize over unconfessed sin and guilt. And that's good suffering. That drives you to the Savior for forgiveness. But some hold on to the past. I failed as a parent. I failed to do this in my Christian life. And you get beat down by that. Then there are those who have doubts. Have you ever doubted? Would you be honest enough to say, I've had some doubts spiritually. I've had some doubts about God and about my salvation. If you are honest enough to voice that, know this, you are not alone. Even John the Baptist himself doubted spiritually. He had a spiritual problem. Yeah, John the Baptist was the one who said, look, there's the Lamb of God, Jesus. He's the one who takes away the sins of the world. He said it with great confidence until he was put in prison. And in prison, he started doubting. And he sent some of his disciples to Jesus. He said, go ask him, are you really the one or do we look for somebody else? There was a doubt in his life, and he voiced that doubt to Jesus. 
Jesus understands your suffering. He became a man. He emptied himself, walked this earth, experienced physical pain, emotional pain. He was rejected by his friends. And I would even say spiritual pain. Spiritual suffering. On the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As it seems, that fellowship for a moment was broken as he took the full brunt of the sin of the world upon him. I've got to say this too. Uh, you can suffer, not just because you're a Christian, but you can suffer because you did something dumb. Right? And it's nobody's fault but your own. You've just done something. If you run out in a freeway, you might suffer for it. And you can't run around saying, I'm persecuted. No, you're suffering a consequence. But there is a way to deal with all forms of suffering. Would you turn to uh, the second chapter of Peter, turn right, and look at verse uh, 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Turn right once again. Look at chapter 4. Verse 12. Notice that. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. See, there were Christians back then, sort of like today, who said... I can't believe it. I accepted Jesus Christ and I'm being afflicted. Peter says, don't let it bother you. Don't think it's strange. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. That when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. On their part He is blasphemed, on your part He is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, you might want to mark that. The Bible talks about suffering as a Christian. Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. In all of those things we just read, there's a recurring word, rejoice. What? Rejoice? Therefore, we rejoice. How about, therefore, we complain? Maybe that would be more appropriate. No? Therefore, we rejoice. Uh, that's especially hard for Americans to do. Now, I don't want to just pick on Americans, but it's true. In our country, our pursuit is called the pursuit of happiness. Our Constitution guarantees it. At all costs, we must get rid of suffering and pain. That's our big pursuit. Doctors tell us that Americans are least equipped to handle suffering than any other people group on the face of the earth. We spend $63 billion a year in pain relief in this country. We even have a slogan now on television, I haven't got time for the pain. I want to bring this to a conclusion. I want to read to you something. And as I do, I'm doing this to get you to think a new way. All pain is not bad. It is very, very good. It is a system that you have that lets you know something's wrong. 
and it causes you to do something with that feeling. I have a book I just recently got. The title is catchy. It says, Pain, the Gift Nobody Wants. It's written by a physician, one of the best hand surgeons in the world, Dr. Paul Brand. And he writes of an episode in his life after seeing pain for years and suffering where uh, after treating leprosy, he was on a way home. He was going on a train trip to London, England. He had been in India, went to England, taken a train to London, got home. Here's his story. I pulled off my shoes to prepare for bed, and as I did, a terrible awareness hit me with the force of a wrecking ball. I had no feeling in half my foot. I sank into a chair, my mind whirling. Perhaps it's an illusion. I closed my eyes and pressed against my heel with the tip of a ballpoint pen. Nothing. No sensation of touch whatsoever. A dread fear worse than any nausea seized my stomach. Had it finally happened? Every leprosy worker recognizes that insensitivity to pain is one of the disease's first symptoms. Had I just made the wretched leap from leprosy doctor to leprosy patient? I stood up stiffly and shifted weight back and forth on my unfeeling foot. Then I rummaged in my suitcase for a sewing needle and sat down again. I pricked a small patch of skin below my ankle. No pain. I jabbed the needle deeper probing for a reflex, but there was none. A dark speck of blood oozed out of the hole that I just made. I put my face between my hands and shuddered, longing for pain that would not come. I suppose I always feared that moment. In the early days of working with leprosy patients, every time I took a bath, I made a visual check for skin patches. Most leprosy workers did. Rest did not come to me that night. I lay on a fully, fully clothed on my bed except for shoes and socks, perspiring and breathing heavily. Welcome to the society of the accursed, I thought. I knew all too well what to expect. My office files were filled with diagrams charting the body's gradual march toward numbness. Ordinary pleasures in life would slip away, petting a dog, running hand across silk, holding a child. Soon all sensations would feel alike, dead. At last dawn came and I arose, unrested and full of despair, I stared in a mirror at my unshaven face, checking for patches. During the night, the clinician inside of me had taken over. I mustn't panic, I thought. Since I knew more about this disease than the average doctor in London, it was up to me to determine a course of treatment. First, I must map out the affected area of insensitivity and get some sense of how far the disease has progressed. I sat down, took a deep breath, and jabbed the point of that sewing needle into my heel. And I yelped. Never have I felt a sensation as delicious as that live electric jolt of pain. I laughed aloud at my foolishness. Of course it all made perfect sense. As I sat hunched in that train, my body too weak for the usual restless motion that redistributes weight and pressure, I had cut off blood supply to the main branch of the sciatic nerve in my leg, causing a temporary numbness. Temporary, I thought. Overnight, that nerve had renewed itself and was now faithfully spitting out messages of pain and touch and cold and heat. There was no leprosy. Only a weary traveler made neurotic by illness and fatigue. That single sleepless night became for me a defining moment. The next morning when I had learned that my foot had come back to life, I knew I had crossed a chasm back to normal life. 
And I breathed a prayer. Thank God for pain. And that is a prayer that I have often repeated hundreds of times since. Pain awakens us to a condition that drives us for help. If you have an ailment that you can't get rid of, it drives you to see a doctor. If pain causes you to seek the Lord, and sometimes the Bible says God allows pain for that purpose, then it served a very needful purpose. Paul says we ought to, excuse me, Peter says we ought to rejoice. Why? Well, first he says it's temporary. If need be, for a little while you're grieved. Say, wait a minute, it doesn't feel like a little while. When I'm going through it, it feels really long. And it might be a lifetime. But when you take your lifetime and stick it next to eternity, it's a little while. Secondly, it is purifying. He talks about in this verse being more precious than gold. A goldsmith will pour gold into a smelting furnace, heat it up, and the impurities rise to the top, and he skims it off. God might put you in the furnace and you might yelp as the flames get turned up and it hurts and as those impurities rise to the top. Keep something in mind if you're in a furnace. God keeps His eye on the timer and on the thermostat. He doesn't want crispy Christians. He's not doing this to burn you. He's not going... As some people think he is. He is not. He is purifying you. And let's be honest, it's needed, isn't it? Wouldn't you be the first to admit you've got some rough edges? You need a little bit of purifying, changing, sanding, polishing. I hope that you'll be able to say like David in Psalm 119, Lord, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is good, Lord, that I have been afflicted that I might learn your statutes. And finally, in faithfulness, O Lord, you have afflicted me. Maybe that megaphone is loud in your ears this morning. Pain has perked you up. Maybe a broken relationship has driven you to seek the Lord. As horrible as that is, as devastating as that is, use it to be driven to God and seek Him.